I'd like to begin a little bit talking about what the Rav represented, what he stood for, and then towards the end to discuss a little bit who he was as a person. But before we begin, consider the, the following. Imagine the following. A group of, a diverse group comprised of many different people come visit a spectacular garden. Maybe it's uh, the, the garden in, uh, in Buckingham Palace. The queen invites them in to, to have a tour of the, uh, of, of, of the garden. And in the garden, there's a dazzling array of flowers and there are beautifully sculpted trees. However, they're only given a quick glimpse of the, uh, of the flowers. Or maybe, maybe the group isn't even uh, allowed entry into the, into the garden. And they're only given a glimpse from afar. Maybe with the benefit of binoculars, but maybe not even with that. Maybe without the benefit of binoculars. Then factor in that amongst this group, there are some people who are familiar with certain types of flowers. This one is a big expert on roses, and this one's a big expert on tulips, and this one has, a, has an affinity for, for, for violets. Some of them perhaps are partially colorblind, totally colorblind. And then, after they, they, they come out, whether they were actually in the garden or whether they just saw the garden from afar, so then they're debriefed. And everyone asks them, No, so what does is, what is, uh, the, the garden in, uh, in Buckingham Palace look like? So you're going to get a, a chaotic set of reports. The descriptions are going to vary greatly, and it's going to be very confusing and full of contradictions. In truth... The garden itself is a harmonious, beautiful, dazzling whole. But in terms of the, the reports of the garden that will filter down to us, they're going to be, again, very different and divergent and, and outright contradictory. The Rav Zechon his greatness was dazzling. And it was dazzling in a wide array of fields. Already in his youth, in, in Europe, he, he was recognized as, as, as a Gon Hador. He possessed an incredible mastery of philosophy, of Kabbalah. He knew virtually Kol Chachma Shaba'olam. He drew upon his vast creative knowledge and, and was a tremendously original Balmachshava, a, 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 a uh, orator who was sui generis, one of a kind in, in, in his uh, ability to hold audiences spellbound. And in addition, of course, in addition, in addition to the shiurim, in addition to the to the drushes, in addition to, to to the essays that he wrote, he was the architect of an approach to modernity. He guided his community in its encounter with all the modern challenges of the day. 
his guidance in Piske Halacha, just like his Shi'urim, just like his, his essays in Machshava, were always profound. They were always rooted in immense learning, creativity, and intuition. But most, most had only a glimpse and a glimpse from a distance. And again, everyone saw the Rav, not everyone, but, but oftentimes people saw the Rav again with their own bent, their own background. And it's little wonder that there's so much confusion about who he was. Sadly, one has to add to the innocent confusion and misunderstanding the tendentious misinterpretation, the desire that some have to be Tola Atzman be Ilan Godol, to find justification for their beliefs, for their Hashkafis, by associating themselves posthumously with the Rav. And, and the result is the current state of confusion about who the Rav was. I, I'd, be, I'd be thrilled if, if all of you walked away from the, the first half hour tonight, or however long it, it, will, it will take us, wondering, well, everything you told us was Dvaram Shutim. Everyone knows that. I, I hope that will be a, uh, a complaint that, that, that everyone, will, uh, everyone will register. Everyone has an inner core. An inner core. Well, what was the Rav's inner core? So the answer is that intellectually, philosophically, Emotionally, the Rav's inner core was he was a Baal Halacha. A Baal Halacha. And that's true even axiologically as well. I'd like to explain what I mean by that. My father, Zechon Levacha, and part of his uh, study of, of Jewish intellectual history, one of the topics which fascinated him was the positions of different Gedoli Yisrael throughout the generations, the Rishonim, the Achronim, in terms of the relationship or, or interrelationship between the disciplines of study of Gemara, the, uh, I guess the uh, academic term for it is, uh, is, is Talmudism, so the relationship between the study of Gemara, the study of philosophy, and the study of Kabbalah. That which is considered the, the most important discipline, the most important body of, of knowledge. Right? The, the, the Rambam, famously or infamously, depending upon one's perspective, I think most thought uh, infamously, that the, the Rambam thought that, uh, that the highest and supreme, supreme body of knowledge was philosophy, was, was metaphysics. That's what the Rambam writes. Uh, much to many people's uh, incredulity and consternation in, in, in Perik Dalit of, of Hilchos Yisodei Torah. And it doesn't always play out the way we would expect. In, in fact, many of the Mukubalim do say 
that they think that it's Chochmas Hanistar, that it's Kabbalah, which is the highest form of knowledge. That doesn't mean that we should all rush headlong into studying Kabbalah. The Mukubalim uh, certainly uh, caution us that a person has to be uh, worthy of such an undertaking. It has to be Milei Kresa Bosavayayin. A person first has to be a, a big Talmud Chochem in, in Nigla, in, in the exoteric parts of Torah. But, but many, many Mukubalim say that the paradise, which the, the, the Gemara and Chagiga talks about, that Rabbi Akiva and, and the others entered Rabbi Akiva Nichnas B'Shalom Yatsu B'Shalom into that orchard is a metaphor for the for the wisdom of Kabbalah and that again it's not it's not necessarily a, a field of study that we're all eligible to enter but again in theory and in practice for Yechidei Skula for for some worthy individuals, that's the highest form of, uh, of, of knowledge. It doesn't always line up the, the way we would expect. In the Chabit, for instance, Rabbi Yosef Cairo, who, who clearly, clearly was a, a student and master of Kabbalah, so my father, Zechon Levacha, said, but if you look carefully, the impression you get is that the Mechabit thought that axiologically, in terms of value, it was halacha that reigned supreme. That the fact that he knew of, that he studied, that he was a student and a master of Kabbalah notwithstanding. But Rabbi Yosef Karo felt that it was the study of Halacha which was the supreme body of, of, of knowledge. I remember in the, the last year of my father's life I told him I had come across a, a Kesef Mishnah in, uh, in Hilchos Mamim. Very interesting Kesef Mishnah. The uh, Gemara in the first parak in Asachas Beitzah tells us that there had been a takana made that mida oraisa, if you have fruit of maisasheni or neta revai, neta revai is the, the fruit which the tree produces in its fourth year. It's the first year when, when, the, when the fruit may be eaten. So neta revai and maisasheni have the same halachas, the same kedusha. Outside of Yerushalayim, if you so desire, so then you have a right to redeem it, to transfer the Kedusha onto money, and then you bring the money to, to Yerushalayim. If you're in Yerushalayim, it can't be told it, but it can't be eaten outside of Yerushalayim. So the Chachamim made a takana that if you were within a day's walk of, of Yerushalayim, la'ater es shuke Yerushalayim beperos, that you shouldn't be poda outside of Yerushalayim, you should bring it to Yerushalayim. Then the Gemara tells us that Rabban Yochan ben Zakkai, after the Chorban, when, when, you, when you couldn't eat it there anymore, so then he was matiris. He uh, he overturned this this takana and said, no, you can be poda it. Go back to the original dindarais. As long as you're outside of Yerushalayim, you can be poda it. So the question is, how could Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai overturn a takana of an earlier bezdin? The Rambam writes in Hilchos Mamim that for a later bezdin to overturn a takana of an earlier bezdin, you have to be godel b'chachmo b'minyan. And the Gemara says of the Shmonim Talmidim that Hillel had that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was katan shebuchulan. So in his own generation, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, the great Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, in that Dordea, in that very special generation in which he lived, so Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was the junior of the Talmidim. The Godel shebuchulan was Yonas uh, ben and the Katan shebuchulan was Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. So the Kesef Mishnah asked the question. One of the two answers the Kesef Mishnah suggests is,
one of the two answers that the, uh, the Kesef Mishnah suggests is that the others were greater than Rabban Yochanan and Zakkai in the other disciplines. The, the, the Gemara lists how Rabban Yochanan and Zakkai knew everything. He knew everything. He knew Sichas Malachi Asharis, and he knew Meister Gracious, and he knew Meister Mekov, and of course he knew all of Shas, Havayos, the Abayi, Verova. Rabban Yochanan and Zakkai knew everything. So the Kesef Mishnah suggests that the others were greater than Rabban Yochanan and Zakkai in the, the other disciplines. But when it came to Halacha, so Rabban Yochanan and Zakkai was, uh, was, was greater than the others. And therefore, for purposes of this Mishnah in this, this Halacha, in Hilchas Manmim, that, that, that the Bezdin, to overturn what an earlier Bezdin has uh, instituted, has introduced, has to be a greater Bezdin, so Rabban Yochanan and Zakkai was considered greater. So... So that, that reflected again the, this answer of the Kesef Mishnah that in terms of supremacy in terms of supremacy so it was the study of Halacha which the Mechaber considered supreme. Certainly if one were to ask this question about the, the Rav Zichon Levacha in, in terms of the relationship what relationship did he see between the different, again, miktsoos of Torah, the different disciplines within Torah, Kabbalah, philosophy, halacha? So there's no question that the Rav attached supreme value that, that the, the, to, to halacha. So in that sense, again, axiologically, it, it was at the, at the core. Biographically, he spent the majority of his life over Gemara. That's how he spent the majority of his time. Philosophically, one of the Rav's major chidushim, perhaps his greatest and, 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 and most important chidush in the realm of Machshava, is the notion of a philosophy of halacha which he devoted a lot of energy to explaining and something which is a, a, a recurrent theme within his writings. It was a recurrent theme within his drushes as well. And that how an authentic, any authentic philosophy of what Jewish religious experience is has to be rooted in halacha. So even philosophically, so halacha was at the core. And emotionally, it was certainly the case. There are a couple of places where the Rav described it. I'll read. I'll read one of them to you. Just just a few a few words. He is describing Talmud Torah generically, but then he switches specifically to to learning Gemara. The study of Torah has ha- has a great cathartic impact upon me. It's rooted in the wondrous experience I always have when I open up a Gemara. Sometimes somehow when I open a Gemara either alone or when I'm in company. When I teach others, I have the impression, don't call it hallucination, I have the impression that I hear soft footsteps of somebody, invisible, who comes in and sits down with me, sometimes looking over my shoulder. The idea is not a mystical idea. The mission in Avos, the Gemara and Baruch says, Yochid, we all believe that the Nosein Torah, the one who gave us the Torah, has never deserted the Torah. And he simply accompanies the Torah. Wherever the Torah has a rendezvous, an appointment, a date with somebody, he is there. So emotionally also, again, and this was the experience, again, the Rav's talking about Talmud Torah in general, but he always illustrates it with the experience he has in learning, in learning Gemara. So, 
in terms of what was at the core of the Rav Halacha again at the core in terms of how he spent his life the majority of his life was spent sitting over a uh, sitting over an open Gemara axiologically for him it was the the supreme discipline within within learning philosophically it was at the center of, of Machshava as well, and emotionally, it, it was the, the most intense experience of his life. Another principle which we need to recognize to understand who he was, to try to figure out what the garden really looked like in, in, when, when we hear all these different reports, is that the Rav's commitment to halacha was something which was absolute and inviolate. Again, reading from the same transcript of, of a famous shir that the Rav gave in 1975, he told a story a story of a woman, a Gioris, who had been Mekarev, a young man whom she had met. Things evolved, they became engaged to get married. She made him into a Balchuva. He goes to the, to the cemetery before his wedding to visit the cemetery and discovers he's a Kohen. The, the question came to the Rav, it was explored, there were no Heterim. So the Rav says, this is the halacha, the coin is also to the Gioris. We surrender to the will of the Almighty. And then further on he says, this is why the Rambam says the Talmud Torah is identical to Kabbalah's Almachu Shamayim. Earlier, read you a few more lines so you can, you can hear his own words I know you don't have to tell it to me I don't live in an ivory tower or in a fool's paradise I know that modern life is very complex I know your problems many of them are passed on to me we feel and I sometimes feel like you as if we are swimming against the tide the crowd, the great majority has deserted us and cares for nothing. We are facing an awesome challenge and I am mindful of that. However, if you think that the solution lies in the reformist philosophy or in an extraneous interpretation of halacha, you're badly mistaken. It is self-evident. Many problems are unsolvable. You can't help it. For instance, the problem of Mamzerim and Eretz Yisrael. You can't help it. All we have is the Jewish Nachla, no one can abandon it. It's a posseg in Chumash Layovo Mamzer Bekal Hashem. If we say to our opponents or to the dissident Jews, this is our stand, they will dislike us, they'll say that we are inflexible, we are ruthless, we are queer, but they will respect us. However, if you try to cooperate with them, or if halachic schemes are introduced from without, you won't command love, you won't get their love, and you will certainly lose their respect.
So halacha was something which was absolute. Another principle to try to characterize the Rav's encounter with the world. And by his encounter with the world, I mean at least two things. First of all, his encounter with the world in the sense of his encounter with Chochmos Ha'olam, whether in the form of uh, philosophy or literature or history, the Chochmos Ha'olam, and also his encounter with contemporary social realities whether it was in, in the earlier years the, the abandonment of Mechitza in, in, in many shuls in later years which is the context of, of, of this uh, shir that I was reading from a transcript of when the question of Hafkar's Kiddushin of trying to revoke Kiddushin was raised so there was a constant, constant trait which was always manifest. My father, Zuchon Levacha, he was speaking about the Rav's approach to Chochmah, but it's equally true in terms of the challenges from social reality The Rav's philosophic and homiletical corpus has no apologetics. The Rav wasn't apologetic. The Rav didn't feel that he had to apologize for anything the Torah said. He didn't feel that he had to try to show how the Torah conformed to any other system. There's no attempt to argue and demonstrate the importance of general learning, just as there's no attempt to defend or glorify Western culture. There's no attempt to demonstrate that traditional Judaism is completely congruent with philosophy or any part of it. This truly noteworthy feature is a result of the fact, and here comes the key line, Rav Asai, that for the Rav, there was nothing essentially problematic about the Masora. There was nothing problematic about the Masora, so he didn't feel compelled to prove that Torah and philosophy or science are compatible. Whatever the Rav found consistent, useful, helpful, so he drew, he drew upon, and whatever he found inconsistent with Torah or antithetical to Torah, so he discarded, he discarded. And the same was true in terms of the Rav's encounter with, again, the challenges of contemporary social reality. There was no apologetics. Again, in this same drasha, when the Rav was discussing the, the proposal that had been made it still comes up every, every so often to, to try to create some kind of mechanism whereby uh, Kiddushin can be uh, revoked and, and there will be no need for, for a get and, and, and to pronounce uh, retroactively that the Kiddushin were really Kiddush that that that, that that, uh, they, that the Kiddushin were, were consummated upon false pretenses, so the, the suggestion was made to abandon the Chazaka, which Chazal say that a woman wants to get married even more than a man wants to get married. The Tavla Mesa of Tandu, and the Halachos, which are predicated in terms of how much a woman is willing to tolerate or accommodate based on that um, need and, 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 uh, and desire to get married. 
So the Rav said the following about this, and, and, and as, you, as, as we listen, so we, we, we hear that characterization of lack of apologetics. Let me add something that's very important. Not only the halachos, but also the chazakos, which Chachme Chazal have introduced, are indestructible. Let us take, for example, the Chazaka that I was told about. The Chazaka Tav Lemes of Tandum and Lemes of Armelo has absolutely nothing to do with the social and political status of women in antiquity. The Chazaka is based not upon sociological factors, but upon a verse in Bracious. Harbo Arbe Itzvonech Veheronech, Be'etzev Tel Dibonim, Vel Ishech Chukosech Vuhuyim Shobach. I will greatly multiply your pain and your travail. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be to your husband and he shall rule over you. It is a metaphysical curse rooted in the feminine personality. She suffers incomparably more than the male who is in solitude. Solitude to the male is not as terrible an experience, as horrifying an experience as is solitude to the woman. And this will never change. This is not a, a psychological fact, it is an existential fact, which is due not to the inferior status of the woman, but rather to the difference, the basic distinction between the female personality and the male personality. This was true in antiquity, it is still true, and it will be true a thousand years from now. She was burdened by the Almighty after she violated the first law. Nothing apologetic. Nothing apologetic. The Rav says that's the, the, the Torah's stand. And, and the Rav articulates it. The Torah doesn't need any, any outside justification, any outside validation. It doesn't have to conform to our modern sensibilities. So there was nothing, nothing apologetic either either in the Rav's approach, again, to Chochmah Sa'olam, or to, the, to the, the challenges of the day. One last, in, in addition to the, again, absolute inviolability of Halacha, the non-apologetic approach, the other, the, the, the other thing which characterized uh, the, the Rav's approach is that in order to offer Torah guidance, in order to apply Torah to real life situations, so it's critical to have a profound understanding of the question, of the reality. If, if you come to our Rav with, with a question about, the, about a drop of milk in, in, in the chicken soup, so you come and you tell him you have this big pot of chicken soup and one little drop of milk f falls in. So the Rav tells you, no problem, the chicken soup is fine. Then you come back to him the next week and you tell him it was a small pot of chicken soup and it was a cup of milk that fell in. And now the Rav tells you it's no good. It's no good and tells you to go kasha the pot. And, and uh, so, so the, the, the Rav is being inconsistent. No, the Rav is not being inconsistent. But the facts change. When the facts on the ground change, so then that will uh, elicit a, a, different, a different response. There's a story about uh, the Chafetz Chaim. The Chafetz Chaim was asked, the Moscow once asked the Chafetz Chaim, why is it that in, in, in Radin, in his yeshiva, they don't teach diktuk? After all, diktuk is, uh, is a very important discipline. The Gemara says that if a person is kore kriyashma medaktik ba if a person reads kriyashma and he knows how to read it uh, properly with all the, all the uh, nuances of diktuk, when it's a uh, shvana, when it's a shvana, 
says Mitzanan lo Gehenim that even if this person Rachman Litzlan has to go to Gehenim, but uh, the, the the temperature is is lowered considerably. Mitzanan lo Gehenim. So that's a tremendous schar for being able to read Kriyashma properly. So the Maskel says to the Chafetz Chaim. So why don't you teach Diktuk? So the Chafetz Chaim says, you're right. He says, but the Gemara also says that Karav alo Diktuk is still Yotze. If you if you don't know the difference between Ashvano and Ashvanach, is it Uveshachbacha or Uveshachbacha? Okay, so you still Yotze Kriyashma. But Diktek Velokara, but if you if you know Diktek but you don't lay in Kriyashma, so then you're not Yotze at all. So the Chafetz Chaim said that in, in his day, when Maskilim used Diktek as a, as, a, as a point of entry to then spread their poison. If, if the Chafetz Chaim were, were alive today in Tavshin Samozayin and you asked him whether or not we should t- teach Tiktok, I don't think the Chafetz Chaim would say the, say the same thing. So a person has to understand what the reality of the situation is in order to apply Torah to, to that reality. And if the Chafetz Chaim said it a hundred years ago, but if we had the privilege of asking the Chafetz Chaim this question today and he would answer differently, it doesn't mean the Chafetz Chaim was changing, it doesn't mean the Chafetz Chaim was a reformer, it just means that the Chafetz Chaim, in his wisdom, recognized that the situation which prevailed a hundred years ago is different. And today, the study of Dikluk isn't, uh, doesn't, doesn't uh, pose a threat or challenge to one's to one's emunah. So, with with these in mind. Let's just review very quickly, and again, at the outset, I, 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 hope, I hope everyone walks away with a complaint that everything was drawn pshutim and, 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 uh, and, and was a waste of time. I'd be very gratified with that complaint. I'd like to just review very quickly, just for a few minutes, just what the Rav's position was on some of the big issues of his day, and, and many of them continue into our day. The, the Rav, of course, is, is well known that in the mid-1940s, I think it was around 1946, I'm not exactly sure about the date, but I think that's when it was, affiliated himself with Mizrahi, contrary to his prior affiliation with, with Aguda. So in 1946, the Rav affiliated himself with, with Mizrahi. Rav describes, you can read about this in, in, in the Chamesh Drashas, this is not necessarily uh, indicative of, of, of why he joined Mizrahi, but just he said, in terms of where his Ahavas Eretz Yisrael came from, he says, he says, my Ahavas Eretz Yisrael was learning with my father the sugis of Yesh Kinyam Akum or Ein Kinyam Akum, whether or not if a Gentile owns land in Eretz Yisrael, so does the, uh, the produce that grows there, do you still have to separate Tumas and Maisos? Kedusha Rishona, Kitsha Lashaita, Kitsha Lashad Lovo was the original Kedusha that, that Yehoshua infused into Eretz Yisrael. Did that linger or was that lost when we went into Golas? What about the, the Kedushas Mikdash? That it was, it was the attachment to these Sugyas which implanted within him a love for Eretz Yisrael. Okay, that's just one sort of background on the Rav and Eretz Yisrael in, in, in general. <coughs> in terms of what the, the Rav's affiliation with Mizrahi represented, 
in general, I think this was true of any affiliation that the Rav had throughout his lifetime. There are different, different gedolim have different approaches on, on, on these types of issues. There, there are some gedolim who, who feel that if they can't identify with an organization or a movement down to every last detail, down to every last kutz shal yud, so then they can't openly, publicly identify with it. And other gedolim, as long as there's fundamental agreement in terms of the, the goals, of the of the movement of the institution, even if they don't agree with every single individual policy, feel that that's the best way to try to further those uh, those ends and those goals is to identify, is to affiliate. So the Rav's position was the latter one, and that's true. All of his affiliations didn't necessarily reflect an endorsement of every single thing uh, Mizrahi did or every single thing that uh, YU ever did. No, the Rav was in fundamental agreement with what the movement, the institution stood for, with what the movement, what the institution was accomplishing. And because of that, he felt that the, the best way to further these uh, critical goals was to identify, was to affiliate. The Rav didn't, didn't subscribe to any type of philosophy of dat u medina, of, of religion and state, or any kind of comparable pairing. The Rav subscribed to Torah. The same way we wouldn't describe ourselves as people who are committed to Torah and to Shabbos. No, we're committed to Torah. Torah says we should keep Shabbos, so we keep Shabbos also. We're not, we wouldn't say that our slogan is uh, Torah and Kashrus. No, our slogan is Torah. The Torah says to keep cautious. So I look for the OU before I, before I buy it off the uh, supermarket shelf. So the Rav didn't su- subscribe to some kind of uh, philosophy of, of Dat or Medina. No, the Rav subscribed to Torah. The Rav felt... The Rav felt, whether it was due to the Ramban's mitzvah of, of the Kibosh Eretz Yisrael, whether it was due to the historical circumstances after the, the terrible Holocaust, that the Torah, the Torah endorsed the, the idea of, of a Jewish state. But it wasn't some kind of, of slogan of, of Dat Umedina. What about the, the Rav's stance on, on, on women's issues? It's well known that, that, that the Rav unequivocally advocated Talmud Torah on a high level for women. That, 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 that's certainly the case. What the, the genesis of, of that position, the background of that position, the Rav used to describe the crisis of assimilation in Europe between the two world wars. He used to say that the people have a romanticized view of what the situation was in Europe between the wars. Because in America things were so terrible, so by comparison things were much better in Europe. But that there was an acute crisis of assimilation and the crisis was even greater amongst the, the young women than it was amongst the, the, young, the young men. The Rav felt that the solution to that, to that crisis was 
intensification of Chinuch Habanos, and that's why he advocated, again, teaching Torah to women on a, on a high level. He used to say that the Chafetz Chaim in his day said that now that women are becoming literate, so we have to, we have to throw our support behind the Reis Yaakov movement. So the Rav thought, well, if they're not only literate, but uh, getting very highly advanced and sophisticated secular educations, so their Torah education has to keep pace with that. This advocacy of, of the Rav for, for Talmud Torah for women was long before feminism existed. Feminism wasn't on the radar screen. No one had the, the, uh, the, the phrase uh, orthodox uh, feminism. It didn't exist. It didn't exist. It was long before uh, these ideas that the, the Rav was advocating before, uh, before there was even a secular feminist movement in terms of the modern, I'm not talking about the suffrage movement, but in terms of uh, the, the, the feminine mystique and in terms of that book, so the Rav antedated this. It had nothing to do with feminism. It was the Rav's feeling as to what the challenges of the day, what type of approach to chinuch were required. And, and, and that's what it was. It, it had nothing to do with any kind of, uh, what, what, any kind of, 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 of feminism. We were reading before, he was very unapologetic and very forceful in in, in, in rejecting any proposal to try to set up a mechanism for Hafkar's Kiddushin, to be able to revoke Kiddushin without the, the, the benefit of a, of a get. And, and he, 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 speaking to those who are thinking about it, he says, Ribbono Shalom, what are you out? To destroy all of it? I want to be frank and open. Do you expect to survive as Orthodox rabbis? Do you expect to carry on the Masorah under such circumstances? Similarly, he consistently and unequivocally opposed women's tefillah groups. Another one of the, the major issues which the, the Rav addressed was, was the question of interfaith dialogue. It, it was a position that, that he articulated in the 1960s, but it was one that he maintained the rest of his life. He was adamantly opposed to interfaith dialogue, and for two reasons he explained. First of all, he explained that you can't have a, a discussion when, when you don't agree on a basic set of, of axioms. And, and the point of, of interfaith dialogue is to come to some kind of agreement. There's nothing to negotiate. There's nothing to, nothing to barter. I remember many years ago, many years ago, uh, after giving a shear, so there was a question and answer, uh, question and answer period. So a, a lady uh, raises her hand and, and, uh, and, and she says, she says to me, well, this doesn't really relate too directly to the shear. Well, well that's the, uh, tell you to the question so you know, uh, <laughs> you know you're in trouble. So this doesn't relate too directly to the Shia, but I'd like to know that the Shia was about the Chukas Akum. It was around uh, January 1st or December 25th. So the, the Shia had been about Chukas Akum. Fine. She says, I want to know why is it. She says, I'm, I'm a conservative Jew. She says, I'll walk into an Orthodox synagogue and... Uh, 
and, and pray there. So how come Orthodox Jews won't walk into a uh, conservative temple and, uh, and, and pray there? So the answer is, the answer is, let, let's say, let's say we're, we're having a, uh, a din Torah over $100. Okay. Ruven and I are having a din Torah over, over $100. Fine. So if I want, it's my $100. So if I want, you know, I can say, you know what? I forgo my claim. I'm going to you the $100. It's my $100. If I want, for whatever reason, I want to forgo the, the claim, I, I can do it. But let's say it's not my $100. Let's say uh, the, the, the litigant, the one who's litigating against Ruven is Shimon. So it's not for me to be Michael the, the, the... It's not for me to, to be Michael the $100. Interfaith dialogue is, is, is a liberal conception. It's a liberal conception that if you... If, if your beliefs are not minashamayim, if your beliefs are, are not the Ribbonashalom, so then you can negotiate, and I'll uh, modify my belief here, and you'll modify your belief there, and we'll come, El Emek and then we can, uh, and then we can agree. But if the Ribbonashalom says, th- th- this is the truth, there's nothing to negotiate. There's nothing. There's nothing to barter. The Rav also was clearly, clearly concerned with, with the danger of uh, of shmad as a result of interfaith dialogue, and it was something that he remained steadfast to. There wasn't any special set of circumstances in the 1960s which generated this stand. It was something that he maintained firmly until the end of his life. In terms of the Rav and, and, and secular education, so clearly the, the Rav valued Chochmah. There's no question about that. But he also saw that it had a very strong utilitarian and pragmatic purpose. And I think in the, the, the public pronouncements, the ones that I've read, I, I can't say this uh, definitively, um, when he spoke about the importance of, of secular education, again, in, 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 in a public forum, he emphasized more, again, not his, his own value of the fact that he valued Chochm as unquestionable, but even more important was the utilitarian and pragmatic purpose that it served. The Rav felt that, that you couldn't ghettoize the Jewish community. You couldn't restrict Jews and say, be only electricians, be only uh, plumbers, be only construction workers. Jews were going to become doctors, they were going to become lawyers, they were going to go to business school, and you had to create a modus vivendi whereby a person could be a scientist, he could be a doctor, he could, uh, he could be a lawyer, and at the same time, be firmly rooted within within Torah, and that's what he he saw as the 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 certainly the the importance of of, of uh, secular education. And and if you look in the Chamesh Drashas when he talks about the, the the invaluable contribution that he sees why you making, he describes it in these terms. Okay, maybe just briefly, just the. For the last few minutes, just uh, to comment on on some impressions of the Rav as a person. I think, looking back, I think what, what stands out the most in retrospect, when I look back, was the Rav's amazing humility. 
And the reason that strikes me more than anything else is that the, the, the best test for humility for another is when a person is so successful, when it's so natural and so genuine that he doesn't even let you realize that, 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 that one is witnessing another. It's so natural, so natural. The, 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 the just, the, the, the pastus with which the person acts and, and, and the way that the person just so easily, easily avoids situations which would call attention to his position or, or his stature when a person's humility is so great that the humility is masked is, 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 is the I think ultimate uh, ultimate test for for another you know if, if you were listening to, to the Rav say a shir so then you had to have some idea who he was if you saw him in his personal life you had no idea who he was Shabbos after the, after the meal so that he, he consistently consistently overruled my mother he insisted he always cleared off the table he cleared off the table there was uh, every uh, every Shabbos there was uh, every Shabbos there was a protest and every Shabbos he, he overruled every Shabbos he rejected and it was done so so naturally so naturally so much so that, that again you, you, you could not recognize the great the great anova which was being which was being displayed that's how natural it, it, it was whether it was a question of uh, if the doorbell rang to go over and open the door himself to pick up the phone himself there was no there, there was no there was no, there was no entourage. There was no, no trappings around him. There was such amazing, amazing pastus, and it was only when, only when he would uh, begin talking. So then, then you realized that 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 that, that 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 he was someone extraordinary. But the way he conducted himself, if he went into a store, he waited in line, even if uh, even if people knew, and he he didn't necessarily have to. There was such tremendous pastor, such tremendous humility. Chaim Velazhina in Ruach Chaim, in the commentary in Peki Avos, explains how there's a direct correlation between the Masorah, Moshe Kibbal Torah, Misina, Masorah, Yeshua, Yeshua the Zikainim, that each of these links in, in, the, in, the, in the chain of Masorah are characterized by their, by their humility, by their Anova. That Moshe Rabbeinu, Kibbal Torah, Misina, because Moshe Rabbeinu was Anov Ma'od, Mikola Odom, Asherah, Pnei Adama. And that's what you saw very much with, with the Rav. Hand in hand with that, was his involvement with people's lives, the chesed that he was involved in, never, never too busy for the individual. The, 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 the Tzarkei HaKlal, Talmud Torah, never ever, I don't know how, frankly, I'm not sure exactly how it was all compatible, how there was time for everything, but there was always time for, for Yechidim, always time for Yechidim, whether it was to talk to them, whether it was for Biko Cholim, accompanying the loved one, Biko Cholim, Nichem Avelim, just involved in, 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 people's, in people's lives. His relationships 
with his contemporary, the Gedolim, is also something which is sorely, sorely misunderstood. Undoubtedly, there were certainly differences of opinion. But the mutual respect that, that existed between him, between, uh, between Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, Zechon Levocha, Rav Moshe Feinstein, Zechon Levocha, and all, all his contemporaries amongst the, the Gedolim here in America with, with whom he had contact, contact was something, was something very wonderful. I, I remember at um, just, just one, one, one memory I think I mentioned this in, in a different forum here in, in Tinek not that long ago. At the, my nephew's birth, which was in, in, in Muncie, so at that time Abyakov Kamenetsky had, uh, had, was living in Muncie, so Abyakov Kamenetsky was at the birth, as was the Rav. Abyakov Kamenetsky was older, but was in, in better health at the time. So Abyakov came, came over and was standing over the Rav and, and took his hand, and uh, I think with both his hands, to, to, to shake hands and to wish Mazel Tov and to ask and, and, and to talk, and so solicitous and so respectful and so... So so concerned, and uh, there was certainly a, a relationship of of, of chiba and and uh, and reyus. I'd like to just conclude on on the same note in which we began, in terms of the, the mushal with the garden, about the da- dazzling garden. But because people only got a glimpse of the garden, so all kinds of conflicting reports come out which create a sense of confusion. The, the, the sad reality is that there's an awful lot of half-truths, inaccuracies, misunderstandings in oral history surrounding the Rav. How do you know what to believe, what not to believe? So the truth is, if, if you didn't know the Rav very well, it's very hard to figure out. So unless one is dealing with an unimpeachable, impeccable source, there's the second half of the program tonight, Baruch Hashem, unless one is dealing with with such sources, the truth is one is better off discounting all oral history and try try to get to know the Rav by reading what he wrote. Try to engage the Rav directly. Try to read as much as possible what he wrote. Try to read Isha Halacha. Try to read not so posh, Try to read Halachic Mind. Try to try to read the read the Lonely Man of Faith. That's in terms of Machshav, in terms of Halacha. So read all the, all the Chidushe Torah. Try to try to engage the Rav directly, and then you get unfiltered who the Rav was and and the core emerges the core again of, of, of a titan of such an Adam Godal again whose core again was as we described initially his preoccupation with halacha on all levels axiological, emotional philosophical etc. And, and one a little bit gets to g- g- glimpse that